Welcome, everyone. I'm Adrienne Brodeur, the Executive Director of Aspen Words. And on behalf of our team, welcome to the final Winter Words event of the 2019. Um, I'm here with Elizabeth Nix, our Program Associate, to introduce tonight's talk featuring Jane Mayer and Carolyn Heldman. But before we get started, there are many people to thank. Um, both for this particular event, but really for one of the most phenomenal winter word seasons we've had to date. We've had four completely sold out events, and it is thanks to all of you, everyone in this room, for just um, being such in, an enthusiastic audience and coming to our programs. So thank you to our members, thank you to our National Council, and to our board. Um, we are so grateful to all of you for creating a strong home for literature in Aspen. In particular, we wish to thank our partners, which include season presenting sponsors, Beth and Josh Mondry, Helen and Wally Obermeyer, our media partners, which are Aspen Sojourner, Aspen Times, Aspen Public Radio, and Aspen 82, our lodging sponsors, the Grant, Frias, and Aspen Alps. Um, our grantors, the City of Aspen, Les Dames d'Aspen, the Thrift Shop of Aspen, Aspen Snowmass, Four Mountain Sports, and Isberian Rug Company. Can you all put your hands together and thank our sponsors? And if you can believe it, as we are wrapping up Winter Words tonight, we are looking forward to Aspen Summer Words, our big literary conference and festival that takes place in June. And I am so pleased and delighted to announce that Susan Orlean, um, staff writer at The New Yorker and author of the best-selling The Library Book, which I have to say is one of the most charming and unexpectedly moving books I've read in the last year, um, is going to be our keynote speaker at our benefit. So. I really hope you can all make it. Um, we are opening up sales for tickets and tables uh, for the June 19th event this coming Friday. And there'll be information on our website. Uh, we'll send out an email blast in each of your programs. There's an insert about it. But we would love to see all your faces there. It's going to be a great event. And um, with that, I will turn it over to Elizabeth Nix. It's my pleasure to introduce Carolyn Heldman, who will be in conversation with Jane Mayer tonight. Carolyn is a media strategist, content producer, and former executive director of Aspen Public Radio. She cut her journalistic teeth in the mid-1980s, interviewing rock stars on MTV, where she was the first host of the news show This Week in Rock. According to Carolyn, when she grew up, she moved into public broadcasting and she's interviewed dozens of elected officials, writers, and other thought leaders. Please welcome Carolyn Heldman and Jane Mayer. Hi, everyone. Good evening. I have the pleasure of introducing our guest tonight, Jane Mayer. 
Jane Mayer's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1995, the magazine's chief Washington correspondent. She covers politics, culture, and national security. Previously, she worked at The Wall Street Journal. She's the author of the 2016 New York Times bestseller, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, which will be available in the foyer on the way out with signed copies. Please pass by if you'd like. Um, that was named one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times. She is the co-author with Jill Abramson, former executive editor of the New York Times of Strange Justice, and with Doyle McManus of Landslide, The Unmaking of the President, 1984 to 1988. In 2009, Mayer was chosen as Princeton University's Ferris Professor of Journalism. Her numerous honors include the George Polk Prize, the John Chancellor Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, the Robert F. Kennedy Book Award, so many more, the Toner Prize for Political Reporting. Please welcome Jane Mayer. In our uh, pre-discussion prior to sitting up here with you, I told Jane that um, in my research for this evening, I had done, um, I dug deep into what we were gonna discuss tonight, and I neglected to find anything that I wanted to talk, not to find anything, but I didn't write anything down about dark money because there's so much more to talk about. <laughs> and we'll get to that, but uh, dark money, real quickly. Um, in the Rolling Stone, in the Rolling Stone, no, sorry, this was actually from the New York Times, the, what the Kochs and their allies have created, um, which they just, in their review of your book, they said that they've created a private political bank capable of bestowing unlimited amounts of money on favored candidates and doing it with virtually no disclosure of its source. They've established a Republican party in which donors, not elected officials, are in charge. My first question with you, with um, the Citizens United decision of the Supreme Court, why haven't wealthy liberal donors followed this model, do you think? Why have they not put money into politics the same way? In, um, the, same, in the same way as well, the Koch brothers have. I mean, they're, they're, I, I, and I often, first of all, thank you, okay. And so nice to be here <laughs> before we get into this. Um, I mean, there are some big liberal donors, um, and, and particularly in the years since dark money came out, there are people like uh, Tom Steyer, who are very openly pouring money in and saying, we're gonna be the Koch brothers only from the other side. Um, they're much more um, transparent about it. Um, same with George Soros, who's also quite a bit more transparent about it. Um, I mean, I think the truth is, it, Democrats are constantly trying to get money out of politics so they don't feel quite as comfortable manipulating politics with their money because it's not in, you know, consonant with their views particularly. I think on the other side, the conservatives see it as just a great investment. You get your return on investment, you put a lot of money in, and you're gonna get policies that favor you. Um, Frequently, Democratic donors are supporting policies that hurt them, raised taxes and things like that. But so, the more, so the more craven question would be, if it works so well, why not? Is it a failing of the left? No, I think it's an ideological opposition to wanting to be like the Kochs. It's not a role that they want to do, manipulating politics with their fortunes the same way. What they tend to do, though, now, I mean, and I'm, I'm actually quite a bit more optimistic about the money scene, at least it, it, since this book came out, because what we've seen is um, two things. 
One, um, huge raise in public consciousness about the role of money in politics so that both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders in 2016 ran against big money. I mean, it's ironic that Trump did, but he did. You remember, he said, I'm, I'm a billionaire. I don't need to take other billionaires' money. I'm going to be honest. Um, <laughs> it didn't work out that way, but um, it was a good pitch at the time. Um, and the thing that Bernie Sanders did was make it a huge issue. He kept talking about billionaires and millionaires and all of that. And he, um, and he made a huge issue out of taking tons and tons of small donations. And that's the model that we're seeing coming into 2020. So that um, people, the, the Democrats are using the internet to try to raise tons of money in small donations. And reformers are looking at ways to um, uh, magnify the power of small donors. And I think that until you can overturn Citizens United, which you can't with this court, that's the way to go. And Bloomberg has now decided not to. He could have followed the same kind of model and used his own money to run. He was talking about it. He was talking about putting in, I think it was like... Uh, 500 million. 500 million dollars, right. So... Um, you know, and I don't think, I mean, again, to your question, I don't think that's what Democrats admire. I think it would have been baggage for him to put that kind of money in. It's, 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 it's not the ideology of the Democratic Party. It is the ideology of the Republican Party. So they're fine with it, but the Democrats are uncomfortable with it. Because this is um, Aspen Words event, the, the story of dark money started as a piece in The New Yorker in 20. 10, 2011? Mm -hmm. 2010. Okay. Mm -hmm. it, it, was it always going to be a book? How did, how did the, what's the genesis of that? I, it definitely was not always going to be a book. It was just going to be a really long story. Um, and one thing I should say to people here who I hope are New Yorker readers that is the secret of why those stories are so long is it's not just that we're so brilliant, we have so much to say, it's also we get paid by the word. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> so <laughs> Why say it in one if you can say it in two? <laughs> so the money. Uh, so um, that story was just a, a, a profile of the of the Koch brothers, um, who I'd become vaguely aware of from my beat covering politics in Washington, and I realized that they were pouring money in secretly to things. And I'm a New Yorker. And I remember going around the corner at Lincoln Center, and where I'd been taken to so many concerts as a kid, and seeing David Koch's name inscribed in it, and thinking, I wonder if anybody in New York has any idea who these people really are, and what they're doing with their money. And I, my feeling was, as, they, as, as David Koch got onto the boards of every great cultural institution in New York, that people didn't realize that he was funding the Tea Party and the hate that was taking on Obama. And so I was trying to connect these two, two sides of his fortune and of his activism. And sorry, I know there's an auditorium here. <laughs> it's not personal. <laughs> I'm gonna, I know I've missed um, a, a few stories, but I'm gonna try to kind of go chronologically as far as publication. So I'm gonna jump now. I think Chris Kobach's story was prior to this, but um, I want to talk about the Kavanaugh hearings and the story you wrote with Ronan Farrow. In the Elle magazine article, um, you 
the woman who interviewed you talked a, a bit, and I, I wanted to follow up on it because I don't think you gave a good enough answer, um, <laughs> that Ronan Farrow got a lot more attention for that reporting than you did. And I want you to comment on that as a woman. Well, th the, the truth was I was not aware that he got more attention than I did. I felt like I got a lot of attention for it. And so I wasn't really suffering over this. Um, and uh, the thing is, Ronan Farrow had just won the Pulitzer for his Me Too coverage. So that's going to naturally attract the limelight. And then there's Ronan Farrow, who on his own is going to naturally attract the limelight. He's, um, he's um, incredibly handsome. And um, every bit his parents' child. He is. He's he's actually wonderful, um, and he was really fun to work with. We had a lot of, you know, in the midst of all of this tension, and this, you know, kind of upsetting reporting. We actually had quite a few laughs, um, which was which is great to be able to do. It's one of the nice things about being a reporter on a magazine is it's a little bit like having, you know, putting on a show or something with a cast. And so we, we had a good time working together. And I didn't realize anyone thought that I was getting the short end of the stick till I started seeing things on Twitter saying, she did her part too. And, um, you know, and I, I, I felt I did do my part, but I, and I felt like I got a lot of attention. And truthfully, it's not really why you do these stories. You sort of do these stories to get the word out about what's going on in the world and what people need to know. And we, um, you know, I feel that, that there were bigger issues than how much attention I was or wasn't getting. I mean, and the issues that kind of mattered was, did anybody pay attention to the women as they were trying to explain what their experiences were with Kavanaugh? And um, that kind of was more important. We're so. going to get to the fact that you maybe didn't get as much attention as you deserved for that story because you're getting a lot of it now with the, with <laughs> the latest story, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. I, I still I want to stick with this for just a second about um, the Kavanaugh reporting. How do you think, as a nation, we need to adjust our views vis-a-vis -vis Bill Clinton in light of this reporting? So I, this is a good and hard question um, I, because at the time when when Clinton was impeached um, or the impeachment hearings were taking place, I I felt it was unfair to make so much of a consensual relationship that he had with a woman, um, not his wife. And you I, thought that then? I did think that then, and I thought that um, the. I thought that the country would also feel that that this was that 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 lying about that relationship was sleazy, but not necessarily impeachable. And so I had to ask myself later, you know, what 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 did I, you know, did I miss it then? And I do think this is a subject where there's been evolving consciousness. Um, one of the things that changed for me was I've become a mom. And I ha I've had a daughter the age that Monica Lewinsky was. And I don't think that I think it could be um, okay for my daughter at that age to have had a relationship probably with the president. It would be <laughs> a, a very unequal power um, situation. And, but I actually, I mean, I, I, I was troubled by it. And I, 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 I had dinner, I met, went out of the way through a mutual friend to have dinner with Monica Lewinsky. And the question that I had 
was for her was was this and the, it was just a friendly dinner and she was great um, but and, and the question was was this consensual and do you feel that you were harassed and to I think what really matters in a lot of ways is it she said it was consensual I was madly in love I didn't think he harassed me um, and I think that ought to matter in evaluating this. That is not what I heard from the women who were um, lodging accusations against either Clarence Thomas or later uh, Judge Kavanaugh. But there was also um, Anita Broderick. There were, there were multiple other allegations against Bill Clinton. In yeah, not, I don't know. Just I, so I don't know as much about the Broderick case, and um, if what she says is true, is true, that would be alarming. Um, I just don't know. I haven't. I, my my feeling as a reporter is until I've dug in and really figured out all the facts, I'm I, I, I'm not going to judge in advance. But I did try to figure out with Monica Lewinsky, what happened. Did she feel that this was something that had been done without her? consent. She did not feel that way. She felt harassed to some extent, it was interesting, later by um, the defenders of Clinton. Um, and she felt somewhat harassed by, um, by Hillary Clinton for trashing her and saying that she was, she was chasing Bill around. But that's a different thing. Um, so, so anyway, uh, I do think though all of our consciousness, or at least mine, has evolved somewhat since then. One more question about that story. Um, Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas, how much did the Kavanaugh confirmation, confirmation hearings change? How we as a nation look back at that? Um, I, you know, I think one of the things that changed was that a couple other women came forward. When Anita Hill was doing this, she was just hanging there by herself. And in this case, I, I personally was reached out to by a woman who said, I can't let her just be out there on her own. I know some things, and she told me. And she was someone who knew about what Kavanaugh was like in high school. Um, and, and she went on the record in our story. She didn't get as much um, attention. Her name was Elizabeth Razor. But um, she said, you know, she knew a lot about what the p hard partying was like during that period. And she said, I'm calling you. She called out of the blue because it's not fair that she should be made to seem like a liar because what she's saying sounds right to me. That was the Brett Kavanaugh I remember. So, um, so, or I should amend that. That was the scene I remember. She didn't, she didn't remember Brett Kavanaugh specifically in that scene. She knew his best friend very well. She had dated the best friend, and she was describing what it was like. So that was true, and then, of course, um, Deborah uh, Ramirez, who decided to speak up to, to Ronan, um, and, and partly because she felt, again, I'm not going to let this woman just hang by herself. I've got information that I think the public needs to know also. So that's a change. It's, it's one little bit incremental improvement. The results weren't so different. <laughs> uh, the story that's, uh, from my perspective, sort of catapulted you into the national spotlight is the story that you just wrote um, about Fox and the White House. And it, this was from the New, York, from the New Yorker. Um, again, this is actually from the Rolling Stone magazine's article about it. Um, I, I love this, so I had to, I'm gonna just read it wholesale. 
Uh, Mayer observes that this cynical, reckless exploitation is something that Murdoch and Trump have in common. Both men weaponized populist resentment of elites. What is most curious, as Mayer notes, is that some of that resentment came from within. Both of these astoundingly privileged white male corporate heirs fed upon slights from even more connected, wealthier, insidery masters of the universe, and here we on the peons, here we are, the peons left to suffer the consequences. This is what happens, it seems, when men like this spend all that money on everything but an effective therapist. <laughs> Have, That's a great quote. <laughs> has anything that you've written before re reverberated like this? Yeah, I mean, things do. Every now and then you hit something that's, it, for me, it feels like... Um, um, playing tennis when you hit right in the center of the of the racket and Sound. the ball and the, and the ball just goes you know I mean it's incredible or hitting a home run or something it it's incredible feeling because you can just see it rocketing across the American culture um, and picked up everywhere and it, it's 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 a, it's kind of amazing you never know for sure that it's going to happen I mean it happened with an earlier piece I wrote about Trump which was the piece. Um, about Tony Schwartz, who was the, the ghostwriter who actually wrote um, The Art of the Deal. And, oh. um, and, and he um, just kind of, uh, he hadn't spoken about Trump in something like 20 or 30 years. And I called him up, and he'd been sitting there, you know, fretting about whether he should ever tell what Trump was really like before he was elected. And, and he felt culpable. He said, I sort of created this guy because I actually wrote the book. And, um, and, um, and the stories he told about Trump were so unbelievable that, that it, 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 was, it was so alarming. I mean, and, I mean and, and then he sent me an email before the story came out. And he said, just in case I haven't been clear, this email shows up. It says, if Donald Trump is elected president, I fear for the huge the future of humankind. Um, and, and he had spent a lot of time with Trump. And so he had an intimate insider view of him. And it was, it was so close in. And that's what's hard to get when you're a reporter being on the outside. But he talked about how Trump didn't read, had no intimate friends, had no close relations with people, just was constantly needing to be, um, had this kind of narcissistic feedback coming at him. And, um, and, and didn't have much knowledge of anything, really, and lied. That's what he talked about, how Trump basically, I mean, and he writes in The Art of the Deal, Trump's whole technique is to tell people what they want to hear, whether it's true or not true, and, and just give them what they want. And, you know, if it's not true, he, he had no compunction about lying. So Tony Schwartz told me all of this stuff, and that, that story really hit. And it also gave me insight into Trump because I, 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 in order to do it, I interviewed Trump. Um, so I, um, I, I put in a request to, to talk to him and it, the campaign was sort of raging and I wasn't ready for it. He called back so fast. And, um, and it was like, you know, you know, Jane, this is Donald Trump, and um, you know, how long you been at the New Yorker? Great magazine, I love it. And you know, and it was, and it was like, um, and, and so, and then I told him, well, I'm doing this piece about Tony Schwartz, the ghostwriter of your book, and he said, I love him too. And I said, I don't, I don't think he's gonna be 
um, voting for you. And, and he said, um, he said, is that right? And the whole sort of tone changed. And he said, that is so disloyal. And then he said, he probably thinks it's going to be good for him, but he's going to find out it is not going to be good for him. And, um, and then, so we got off. I could hardly get him off the phone. He was kept talking and talking. And then, um, and I hung up, and then like 10 minutes later, the phone rang, and it was Tony Schwartz. And he said, did you tell Donald Trump I'm not <laughs> voting for him? And, and um, he said... Um, I said, it's true, right? And he said, well, yeah, it's true, but I haven't spoken to him in like 29 years. And he just searched me down on my car phone and um, read me the riot act. And, and he said, um, and he said it, he'd heard it from some reporter at the New Yorker and he said, failing magazine that no one reads. That <laughs> 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 was great. <laughs> anyway. Um, I don't want to cut through the brev uh, the levity because it's so fun, but um, I do want to get I do want to get serious for a minute because this is there's some serious consequences for all of this. Um, when he spoke at CPAC, our president, um, he spoke for two hours, which I think was a record. He there's a moment towards the end of the two-hour speech where he was saying to the cameras, "I've been speaking for two hours." No one has left the room. It's packed to the rafters, and you're not leaving. And if you look, if you watched anything but Fox, you could see people streaming out. <laughs> it's not funny, people, because these are the this is where facts don't matter. Right. Because what happened now with the DNC not allowing Fox to host a debate, the consequences are real. We can live in these silos. We can live in this world where we are only having this feedback loop. So what's to be done about, I mean, just indulge me for a second because mm -hmm. I'm getting deep and dark. Um, what, what's going to happen with, with this? With Fox or with, or with our with the, with the partisan division within this country? I think that. Um, I, I mean, it is, it is scary. And, and, you know, to, I mean, there, one of the things I wrote about in that story, though, is a, 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 an interesting academic book Done by a couple professors at Harvard, that that says that that really it's it's the right media sphere, it's it's the right, and then it's the rest. Um, it's not as if the left is the right meaning the correct the or the far right, right no the far right that 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 Fox and the feedback loop and the, has a very different function than the rest of the media sphere. It is, its, its function is to confirm people's biases and to make them feel good about their choices. And that the rest of the media sphere, from, from the center on, from everything to the, to the left of Fox, is, is, is pretty fact-based. We get things wrong all the time. We make mistakes. Um, the far left um, you know, has blog posts that are just as idiotic as the far right some of the time, but they don't, the, the disinformation doesn't creep in and stick in the rest of the media sphere. We correct each other. We jump on each other's necks. We run corrections. We apologize. 
Um, we don't do what Tucker Carlson just did, that whenever night it was where he was on, just the night before last or whenever it was, I've lost track of the time, where he just said, I'm not going to apologize for this. There, so I think that you know, if you're worried about the division being each of us in our own silo, not speaking to the other, I really feel like the rest of the country is in a pretty healthy media sphere, if so long as you listen to you know, I worry about things like local press, it's dying. But I don't worry about the quality and the fact-based nature of what I see in the New York Times, and the Washington Post, on NPR, on um, a lot of local newspapers, the wires. We, the, in fact, I think that Trump has provided a tremendous challenge to us. And I feel like we've acquitted ourselves pretty well. And we're, we're really um, showing what we've, we're able to do. It's exhausting. Um, and, and Fox is a case, Fox is really, I mean, the reason I wrote about it is it's, it's, it's an uh, aberration in a lot of ways. It, it's an outlier in our media sphere. And I had to watch a ton of Fox to write about it. And um, well, I actually recommend people take a look because um, they shouldn't be able to get away with um, people not realizing what they're doing. And if you watch it, you will be appalled. I was amazed how bad it is. It's, it, it's hours and hours every night of, of um, what I guess a nice way to put it would be baloney. Um, it, it's, it's on, they, they're, they're stuff that's demonstrably untrue, it's conspiratorial, it's filled with material that's meant to divide people and, and, and turn them against each other. It's, so it's, a, it's, I mean, and the First Amendment protects them, and they have their right to, to say what they want to say. But that doesn't mean we don't have the First Amendment right to push back and say what you're saying is irresponsible. Doesn't that lend weight, though, to the pushback of the DNC's commit, uh, the DNC's decision to disallow Fox to host a debate? That we could, that that that, that large population of Fox viewers could see. I think even Fox viewers can turn a channel. I don't know that they ever do. You're serving it up right to the No, right I no, I mean I just, you know, it's not I mean that decision was a political decision on the basis of, you know, what what the DNC wanted to do. They cited my story as their their reason for it. Um, I I I think that you know, I, so I don't feel like I want to get it. I'm a journalist, I'm a reporter. I don't want to tell the DNC what to do or what not to do. They're in the political business. But what I do think is that it shows that there are consequences for Fox if they're going to put very irresponsible material on and, and, and use their news side. They're, they're, they have some good reporters. I wouldn't say they're amazing, but they have some good reporters. They've got a couple really good people. Chris Wallace is a great interviewer. Um, and that's the fig leaf that covers up for the rest of what they're doing. And I think there should be consequences for putting on the stuff that they're putting on. And it matters especially right now, and the reason I wrote about it was because it's programming Trump a lot of the time. So if they were just speaking into the wind, being angry, you know, King Lear in his final days or something, 
It would be it would be one thing, but that's not what it is. What it is is that, and and every day since my story came out, I think Trump has again watched Fox and Friends in the morning and tweeted about it. He, it's this endless feedback loop. There's not a normal kind of process for um, policy making inside the White House. I, I've covered presidents since Reagan. I was the Wall Street Journal's White House reporter. So I was there in, in 1983 and 1984. Their so first. Their first. first female um, White House correspondent. Um, they were a little slow getting around to having women there. But, um, but, that, but the truth is, there's usually a process for making policy where, um, and, and, and pretty much every administration has followed it. This one doesn't have that process. So a lot of the policy ideas that come from Trump are actually first coming from Fox. So if they're putting stuff on the air that's not true, it has huge consequences in our country. So, I, I mean, and so, I, so I, anyway, so I, I, I think there should be a price to pay for that. And, and, and I care a lot about journalism. I care a lot about get, working really hard to get things right and to get all sides and to tell the truth as best you can get it at that moment. And so if there's a whole news, so-called news organization that doesn't care about these things, I, you know, I take it seriously and I think it should cost them. Couple, yeah. I have three quick questions, and I think we're going to turn it over to. Okay, um, you, as the first female White House, White House correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, before that you were a city reporter at the Washington Star. In in an article, a profile on you, you said it was only then that you began to take yourself seriously. Um, do you think we women do that too late? I, it might be my age group, my generation. Um, I mean, I was, you know, I, I, I got into Yale and was in the class of 1977. And we were being, we were being encouraged to have careers. But I, 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 I came from a family where um, the men were, a lot of them, quite prominent and, um, and had accomplished a lot. And the women were the support system. And the and the and brought up the kids and so that was to some extent the the kind of the values I was raised in and I, I I remember sort of thinking well I'm not sure I'll have an interesting life but I'll try to marry somebody interesting um, and um, and that was you know but again I think people you know this is your consciousness evolves and I you know I t began to take it more seriously the more I did it I want to really briefly talk about the article that you did. Um, for the New Yorker on Chris Kobach, who was defeated as a for with his run for governor of Kansas, and in the article you um, suggest that it could be a model for defeating Trump. Can you explain more about that? I thought that was really interesting um, because in Kansas, maybe it's because it is the state that the Kochs come from, and it's a place where there's been really far right politics, and there's been kind of a pushback against it. So I sort of saw it as possibly a harbinger. Of, of things to come, and 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 Kobach is a particularly, um, um, you know, far right, hard ideolo ideologue, really. You describe um, him as more Trumpian than Trump himself. More Trumpian than Trump himself. So how did they do it? And what they did, it's interesting, was the Democrats who won there, they recruited some of the Republicans. 
Um, and they turned the sort of moderate Republicans against Kobach. And the moderate Republicans joined them. Um, and I think, you know, that split, if you, can, if you could split off some of the middle and, the, and even some of the Republican Party, um, you know, there, there's obviously a path there. It's really hard to do, though, because the Republican Party, at least in Washington, is the party of Trump now. Um, and, you know, and partly what got me, just to go back to the subject of Fox, part of what I thought was really interesting in that story and in the reporting I was doing on it was some of the big critics of Fox now are Republicans who are not Trump supporters. Because what they're saying is Fox has become a mouthpiece for Trump. And so Bill Kristol um, and, and, and Jennifer Rubin, Rubenstein, I guess this, Rubin, Ruben, Ruben, yeah, Ruben. Anyway, she's she's incredible. Um, the truth is, she was, and 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 others were speaking out, and 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 even some of the people inside Fox were saying, we don't have any dissent here anymore. There's there you don't have both sides of on even on conservative issues. So um, so if you could mobilize some of that never Trump. Um, Sentiment on the on the in the Republican Party and in the center of the country, um, you could you could at least can, in Kansas it it knocked the Trumpian character out. His approval ratings are are remarkably stable. They're hovering around 44, 49. They right in there. They're the same as na nationally, and in the Republican Party he's at ninety percent approval. He's the same place that Clinton was coming up on re-election, Obama coming up on re-election, and Bush coming up on re-election. Same approval ratings. Please comment. <laughs> well, I am not uh, you know, someone who knows how to predict what the future's gonna be. I try to just figure out what's happened here. So I don't really, you know, know how it's going to play out. Uh, you know, elections are choices. It depends who the Democrats come up with. But there was a very close election in 2016. I've been watching what um, David Axelrod's been saying, which is that if, if just a small number of votes shift in the Midwest and in Pennsylvania, Trump can't. He thinks Trump can't get reelected because the, the, those those they've already shifted. I I I, I imagine it'll be a fight, um, but I, you know a lot depends what the what the Democrats come up with. I can tell you from watching Fox, which again I do think's worth looking at to see what, where where this these these debates are going. Um, they're 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 already casting the Democrats as socialists who are going to take away your hamburgers, um, and. You know, and so the new Green Deal, um, all of that kind of thing, they're, they're, they're going hard on, so. A couple final questions before we turn to the audience. Um, you're having a moment right now, Jane Mayer. You're everywhere. Um, why do you think? So I was I, I went to talk to a book group here yesterday that was a wonderful group of people and so I hate to repeat it um, anything I said and I apologize if any of you are here but to me it feels like um, since we're in snow country like when you shoot the gun that gets the avalanche to go um, and it's not that I created the conditions the conditions were there 
Um, but what I did with that story on Fox was that was the gunshot, and it just created an avalanche of coverage. And um, I think it was, you know, a lot of it is luck, but some of it is knowing how to see see what matters and try to tell a story that people will read about it. Um, there were a number of new, really important bits of news in that story also. Some of the things that, that are really hard to get um, that were in that story, was, one in particular was the story of how um, Trump ordered his top economic advisor in the White House, Gary Cohn, to interfere at the Justice Department and stop a huge multi-billion dollar merger AT between AT&T and Time Warner, presumably in order to punish CNN, which is owned by Time Warner. Um, using the, the Justice Department of the United States to um, retaliate in a petty way against reporters who cover you fairly for that matter um, is a scary thing and it's a very corrupt thing. And so um, that anecdote I think was really important. It's been picked up by um, Senator Van Hollen and also by the Democrats in the House. They're hold, gonna hold investigative um, hearings into it. Um, and see whether the Justice Department's been corrupted in that way or if there was an effort to try to do that. Um, the Justice Department did file suit. It did get in. It tried to block the merger. It was overturned and then, it, and then, and then the Justice Department appealed and lost again. So we know the courts didn't think that they had a case and we know that they, they nonetheless filed that case, cost those companies hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, you know, so, I mean, some of those things, that, that kind of reporting is important, and I was really glad to be able to bring it to the surface so could, people could see there's a lot going on beneath the surface here. It's not just that Fox News is saying obnoxious things. It's that Rupert Murdoch, who owns it, may be getting favors because he was the rival company trying to this merger. Um, so... These so things really matter, you know? Given this brave and deep reporting that you did that we all now know because of this, um, the zeitgeist of the moment, that this is, you've become a star in a sense through this reporting. Till tomorrow. Well, you know. uh, right, till the next, <laughs> right. But what, what did we miss? What, what stories did we miss that you've done in the last two or three years that you'd like us to go back and read again? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, I feel, I, truthfully, I feel like I've gotten a lot, my stories get really well read and they get a lot of attention. I, I feel amazingly lucky because a lot of them have, have managed to be very well um, brought out to the world through The New Yorker. So again, I don't feel I'm lacking for attention. And the truth is that, but it's a very weird cycle we're in here, um, which is where, you, I mean, um, you know, there was the, the Andy Warhol thing about how everyone would have 15 minutes of fame. It's now about 15 seconds, and, and everybody's attention span is so short, and we're so overloaded with Twitter and everything else that, you know, it, the, it, it's, it's exhausting and confusing for people, I think. And, and so, but, but as a reporter, you don't, you, you know, you'd be silly to think you're a star for long. Um, you're really not. It's there, we're covering the people who count and um, um, and we're just trying to sub in for the public so that you guys get the answers you need to know in order to make smart decisions. And that's what it's all about. Thank you for doing what you do.
We're going to turn it over to you now. There are mic runners on either side the aisles. So um, if you, here's one. Oh, there's a lot right here. Come down here, Elizabeth, both of you. How about Wally? It took a number of years um, to write Dark Money. Um, and um, so the, the hardest thing really was to figure out how to turn it into a story. And I think the reason that that book succeeded and a lot of these stories have succeeded is that they take very complicated issues but tell them as stories. Um, there are real characters in them. Dark Money has the Koch family and several other billionaire families that are fascinating to hear about. Um, and, and so for me, the hardest challenge really was how do you take the subject of money in American politics and tell it in a way that doesn't put people to sleep um, and, and, and makes them understand why it matters. And, and so that was, the, that was the hardest thing about the research, really. Um, that and just, I'm bad at math. And so <laughs> there, was a lot of, there were a lot of statistics about money in there. Um, so. There's a woman in green right here. I also commend you on dark money. I just read it over the last five days and was blown away by the amount of detail. But my question is, I'd like your opinion of whether the whole traditional Republican Democratic um, positioning flipped just because of I, I really, I mean, it's a very complicated question, and there's certainly not one answer. It's a really good question. But I, I really felt that, um, that, that the Kochs and other sort of extreme right um, sort of billionaire patrons of the Republican Party, they, they set the table for Trump. Um, and they did it in a number of ways. One is by spending tons and tons of money over the last 40 years to denigrate the very idea of government. And so by the time Trump ran, the idea that he had no experience in government, knew nothing about it, knew nothing about policy, was seen as a plus, because he's not a Washington insider. Um, and so, so there's that. And then the other thing is that the party had moved so far to serving the big money donors in the Republican Party that it had in many ways abandoned the working class um, members of its own constituency. And Trump, uh, you have to give him credit for something in the rhetoric that he used in 2016. He said, unlike all the other Republican candidates, he said, I'm going to protect Social Security, Medicare, and even Medicaid. He's not. 
but he did say that he you know the rest were saying these are entitlements that nobody should get these are this is socialism whatever else but he knew how to speak to a base that was being left out of the coke vision of 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 republican politics and it had become so libertarian and so out of touch with ordinary people that when you had trump trump saw an opening and grabbed it um, and 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 so in 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 many ways i think that you know and they have said people in the coke world have said themselves that they also they created so much anger by pumping up the tea party that they then that they they then lost control of it and and the 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 sort of these angry warriors took over the the uh, parts of Congress, the far right in Congress, and there were people out in the street who were, you know, anti-immigrant and anti-anything that's other than sort of white male. Um, and um, they helped create that. It's not necessarily their ideology, but they found those foot soldiers really useful during the Tea Party period. And then they kind of lost control of them. So I, I really feel they have a lot to answer for. There's a gentleman in the second row here. In the first few uh, paragraphs of your uh, recent article, you mentioned two other presidents, uh, Madison and Jackson, that also had a special relationship with the press. And then you kind of, I, I, I found that so intriguing. And I'm interested, obviously, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, how did it wind up? Um, I mean, what happened, uh, I, I don't recall either of the following presidents actually uh, having that special relationship. And uh, any other comments you, you were thinking about when you actually uh, named those two presidents as uh, kind of uh, forerunners of what we have now? So, I mean, we've had historically presidents who've had very cozy relationships with particular newspapers, those two. I wish I were, I was an American history major and I wish I knew more about them specifically. I called up Michael Beschloss, who's a terrific presidential historian, and I said to him, have we had others? And he was the one who gave me those two examples, actually. Um, and I, I, I certainly remember, you know, more recently, um, the relationship between JFK and the Wash, it was Newsweek at the time when Ben Bradley was at Newsweek. And, and that was a very close relationship. And, um, and there've been other sort of specific reporters and columnists who've been close to various presidents. I mean, in the case of, so I can't tell you more about them, but I could tell you in the case of, of Bradley, um, by our modern standards, we would consider it um, you know, a, mista a, a, a mistake, something he shouldn't have done probably, because he covered up a lot of what, was, what he knew about JFK and his private life. Um, and um, these days we, we would consider that uh, sort of an ethical breach in, as a journalist. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a temptation that's long been there for people in power to cultivate the media and make sense. And the media, you know, it's exciting to be invited into the White House and to have the inside track but it inevitably creates these conflicts. Do you write what you learned at the dinner table at the president's house or not? Um, so um, anyway, I think the Fox situation is, is quite different though, because it's not just individual reporters. It's the, it's the owner, uh, Rupert Murdoch, who's according to people I interviewed on the phone almost every day with Jared Kushner. 
um, and talks frequently with Trump also. Um, and it's, it's, it's also that Sean Hannity is, is uh, on the phone almost every night after his show with the president. It's, 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 it's uniquely close, um, I think. From at least that's what I'm told by presidential historians. Carter here and then Daniel. We're now almost, we're almost two years into the Robert Mueller investigation and know very little about what the outcome may be. And regardless of the outcome, um, it's undoubtedly going to be uh, investigated by reporters to see what their actions were and the directions they're taking. Are you doing any exploration on that line now? I, th I think almost every reporter in Washington is, has a, their eye on it and is you know, thinking any minute this will happen. Um, I did a long piece about Christopher Steele and his dossier, and so that was my effort to sort of figure out what the backstory to this whole thing was and what the relationship might have been like between the Trump campaign and, and Russia. Um, but the truth is, almost none of us really know, if we're honest, what Mueller is doing. And each one of his indictments has been a surprise. Um, and I, and he, the, you know, it's a rarity, but he just, they just don't leak over there. I mean, there are reporters who are, there are reporters who are posted across the street from his office and trying to figure out what's going on just by who goes in and who comes out. There are reporters who watch where he goes to dinner um, and who he's having dinner with. Um, it's a favorite place he goes on Friday nights. Um, but that, you know, we, we have, truth, we hate to say it, but we have nothing. <laughs> uh, I do, I do, I have a Mueller story though, which is, um, I, I did encounter him in earlier reporting when I was writing about the torture program during the, the Bush administration. And um, there, he was at a dinner party with um, uh, one of the lawyers representing an accused um, terrorist in Guantanamo. And one of the other people at the dinner table said to this lawyer, how can you possibly defend somebody like that who's in Guantanamo, who had some, you know, may have had something to do with attacking us on 9-11. And it was kind of this moment where, you know, it was a very unfriendly feeling moment at the dinner party. And Mueller, who was there and who was the director of the FBI, um, picked up his glass and he said, here's to the man who was the Guantanamo lawyer, who's an American lawyer doing what he should do. And I thought, that's really amazing. Um, so. Daniel here. See you all in the back. Is there anyone back there? Um, since the selection and this reign of terror started, there's been a, just a calling into question of fundamental institutions. Abolish electoral college, change electoral college. Today, reports about Democrats looking at increasing the number of Supreme Court justices to, for obvious reasons. But do you think in your time in Washington and everything that you've seen and everyone you've met that any of these changes to our, the fundamental structures of our government as laid out by the Founding Fathers, do you think that's going to happen at some point and that this may be 
the reason why. So, again, I don't, I don't really know, but I have been impressed by how um, captured Congress is by the big interests recent, in recent years. I mean, in the time that I've been in Washington, money has played so much of a bigger role. It's really hard to um, push it back in Congress. And yet, that's one side of this. The other side is, the other thing that's impressed me is most of the people who are serving in office really want to be reelected. And if they feel that there's public pressure that's going to turn against them, if they don't do something, they, they, they listen. They are, it, you, it, the public has more power than it thinks it does if it makes a lot of noise. And I've seen that happen in many different movements along the way in the years that I've been in Washington. And so if the public were, if people were galvanized, um, if they got behind something, you know, a specific reform um, and, it, and, and really made a lot of noise about it, I think, I think there'd be a chance. I mean, it, it takes a lot of public pressure in organizing, though. So. To be respectful of time, we have time for one more question. I'm so sorry, I can't see very far back there, so right there. Lucky winner from the back of the room. Um, hi, I'm curious if you can shed any light on Mitch McConnell. Yeah. <laughs> is it a, uh, I'm, I'm wondering what drives it. Is, it. is it power, is it policy? And also in the context of dark money, I wonder where he fits in with funding from dark money sources. Oh my gosh, he's so key to the dark money story. I mean, th nobody has done more to um, try to bring money into politics than, than Mitch McConnell and to try to overturn all the various campaign ref finance reforms that took place after Watergate. He's placed people on the FEC that, that will do that. He's brought the cases. Um, he pretty famously um, taught a class at some point early on in his career where he stood in front of his class and said these are the three things and standing in front of his blackboard that really matter in politics and he moved away and it was money, money, and money. Um, so he is really the, the, the architect of a, of a lot of this and um, um, he's very close with the Cokes. He goes to their semi-annual confabs sometimes. Um, you know, he's a, just a, a, a really hardened, cynical player, and, um, and I guess very good at it. That's all we have time for, everyone. Will you please allow uh, Jane to make her way to the table, and she can meet you there, so try not to crowd her as she comes through, and thank you very much for being here.